Yaya Nukukah, Yoksosos, Pies Elgar, the Aisugok, Ugas, Ostrod, Aisei, Abelia, Yoksosos, Nuga Nuga Aya, Zero. Welcome to the 342nd of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we'll be starting off with the 13th part of Wilmot's History of the Zulu War, and then I'll be running part 7 of Three John Silence Stories, and then we'll follow up with a little bonus. Let's head off to that dark continent. Chapter 9 The policy of Sabatal Freer received the hearty and most earnest support of those people who were best qualified to judge of it, the colonists of Natal and the Cape Colony. At large and enthusiastic public meetings held in every town of any consequence, unanimous votes of approval and sympathy were passed. In the city of Cape Town, a great mass meeting declared unanimously for Sir Bartle Freer. Graham's town expressed itself in the same manner. Port Elizabeth notified its fullest confidence in His Excellency the High Commissioner, being persuaded that the policy he is seeking to carry out in South Africa is eminently calculated to secure the permanent tranquillity of the country and the welfare of its inhabitants. King Williamstown heartily sympathises with His Excellency and expresses its entire confidence. Graf Renette, having heard with the greatest satisfaction the manner in which the Metropolis has come forward to approve of the policy of His Excellency, Sir Bartle Freer, cordially endorses the Cape Town Resolution. Swellendom recorded its Satisfaction with the well-timed movement in Cape Town. Georgetown notified its approval. Queenstown expressed its cordial sympathy and confidence. Kimberley declared strongly in favour of Sir Bartle Freer and, of course, so did Peter Maritzburg, D'Urban and other towns in Natal. In fact, from east to west and from north to south, all classes, all creeds, all nationalities were unanimous in upholding the only policy which they considered could serve South Africa. Bishop Colonso of Natal and several other able men in Cape Town held different views, but then their number was so very small as to detract in a very small measure from the unanimity of the expression of feeling. At public meetings, hearty voices of thanks were also passed to Her Majesty's Government for having sent out reinforcements. There can be no doubt whatever that during April, May and June, there was a very dissatisfied feeling in the colonies, as well as at home, with regard to the exceeding tardiness of operations. The small irritating raids made at different times upon Zululand cannot be styled successful, and resulted in reprisals which were calculated to have a demoralising effect upon our own natives. If Colonel Wood had been reasonably reinforced and allowed to go forward, there is good reason to believe that he could have finished the war. Up to the 18th of May, his troops had been successful in seven skirmishes and one pitched battle. They had burnt the great Maquilazine military kraal and captured 9,000 head of cattle. This light brigade was admirably adapted for Zulu warfare. Pearson's column on the coast had also performed admirable service. The extraordinary difficulties and delays of transport under the new organisation in the second campaign have been already referred to. Lord Chelmsford, writing to the Secretary of State from Newcastle, Natal, on the 14th of May, states that the troops are in position, only waiting for sufficient supplies and transport to advance. 
From what the general commanding had learned from General Clifford, he feared that it would be out of his power to advance until the 1st of June. Major General Crelock, commanding the 1st Coast Division, reported that he hoped to have two months' supplies in three weeks' time on the Inyenzi River. The posts on the northern line had all been visited, and headquarters fixed at Utrecht, until such time as the 2nd Division under General Newdigate was ready to advance. Shortly afterwards, information was received that the border tribes were massing at Babinchenko and Inyanyeni, two points near the Blood River, and that the Zulus had sent for reinforcements to Elundi. Rest and security for two entire months had now been given to the enemy, and their determination to continue the war was perfectly evident, in spite of all the illusory messages asking for conditions of peace which were periodically sent to the British camps. On the 26th of May, General Wood advanced his column eight miles, and General Newdigate proceeded a distance of twelve miles towards the Blood River. Lord Chelmsford established his headquarters at Copy Aline. Not until the middle of June could Port Durnford be used for sending supplies to General Crelloch's coast column. Great additional transport facilities were by this means secured. On June 3rd, a belief prevailed at the Lower Tegela that an advance would be made as soon as the supply of cattle for transport purposes was sufficient. During all the operations, the percentage of sickness was not very great. In the early part of the war, a large number of men were invalided, particularly from the coast column. The Durban hospitals were full, but the number of deaths was not large, and as the cold season advanced, sickness became less. Zululand during May, June and July is in fact as healthy as any country in the world. The two northern columns moved on slowly. On the 7th of June, Lord Chelmsford was at the Nondanai River, where a fortified post had been established. The 5th of June was the date of Colonel Buller's skirmish already referred to, in which lancers and dragoons were engaged. On the 17th of June, a correspondent reports that Newdigate's forces were constantly occupied patrolling and shelling kraals and dongas, with no appreciable result. At this time, the Zulus appeared in great force within sight of the camp at Lundberg. Newdigate's column then marched to join that of General Wood. The utmost possible precautions were taken against surprise, both on the march and in the camp. At one place, the rocks which would have offered excellent cover for an attacking force were mined. The mines would be fired by means of electricity from the lager. Lines of galvanised wire were also placed around the camp, which the soldiers styled Ketchawayo catches. The heliograph was used for signalling by means of flashes and turned out extremely useful. On the 26th of June, the 1st Brigade with the Natal Naval Brigade moved from Fort Napoleon and the long-expected junction of the columns appeared at last likely to be effected. It was certainly high time. The English imported horses in Newdigate's brigade were beginning to suffer from the severity of weather and a scarcity of food. The Zulus had abundance of time to collect a large army, and the immense delay in striking a decisive blow discouraged the troops, encouraged the enemy, and caused immense dissatisfaction to the public at home and in the colony. The Imperial Ministry at last seemed to partially yield to public pressure and to public opinion. Sir Garnet Wallesley was appointed Commander-in-Chief and Her Majesty's High Commissioner for the Natal, Transvaal and Zululand. In connection with the burning questions of the day and the blame so lavishly bestowed upon the civil and military leaders in South Africa, the following dispatch from the Secretary of State ought to be read with careful attention. 
Sir Michael Hicks' speech says 28th of May, 1879. After full consideration of the condition of affairs in South Africa, Her Majesty's Government have decided that the arrangements under which the chief civil and military authority in the neighbourhood of the seat of war is distributed amongst the four different persons can no longer be deemed adequate to the requirements of the present juncture. In the number of imperial troops engaged and the expenditure incurred, the Zulu War has assumed dimensions far exceeding those of any other being carried on for many years in South Africa, and it appears, but too evident, that military operations have been seriously impeded by a want of harmony between the civil and the military authorities, of which the difference that has arisen between the Lieutenant General commanding the forces and the Lieutenant Governor of Natal, with regard to the disposal of a portion of the native levies called out for service, has furnished a striking example. In such a matter, the High Commissioner has no power to interfere, but were it otherwise you would be unable in present circumstances to interfere with any practical effect. For the prompt action requisite in time of war would entirely preclude the satisfactory reference to Cape Town of this or any other numerous questions requiring the decision of the High Commissioner. While on the other hand, your own presence at the seat of war has become impossible. After an unavoidable protracted absence from Cape Town, during which you have laboured with singular zeal and energy to discharge all the duties which have devolved upon you, you will be entirely occupied with the many important matters necessarily postponed until your return. The union of Griquicland West with the Cape, to the settlement of which your recent visit to the province will have largely contributed, has to be completed. The financial questions jointly concerning the colony and this country demand immediate attention and important work remains to be done in carrying out the recent legislation of the Cape Parliament for the defence of the colony. But above all, Her Majesty's Government are anxious that the larger and more complicated questions connected with Confederation, on which I shall shortly address you, should be considered under your guidance during the approaching session of the Cape Parliament, and they attach special importance to the advantages which may be derived from your exertions in promoting this great work. Under these circumstances, Her Majesty's Government have determined to place the chief military and civil command in the eastern portion of South Africa, in the hands of one officer, and they have settled Lieutenant General Sir Garnet Wallesley, GCMG, for this duty. His high professional standing and his varied and distinguished services preclude any question as to the fitness of placing him for the time in supreme authority over able men now commanding Her Majesty's troops in South Africa and administering the governments of Natal and the Transvaal and it is equally beyond question that he will receive the most loyal and cordial support. Sir Garnet Wallesley will, in addition to his military command, be commissioned as Governor of Natal and of the Transvaal, and High Commissioner for Native and Foreign Affairs to the northward and eastward of those colonies. In the latter capacity, he will assume for the time that portion of your functions which, at a crisis of such gravity as the present, could not be performed by any High Commissioner acting at a distance of more than 1,000 miles from the scene of operations. You will, I am confident, be the first to recognise the necessity of the arrangement, and will readily assist Sir Garnet Wallesley should you have returned to Cape Town by the time of his arrival there on his way to enter upon the duties of his office, with all the valuable information which your knowledge and experience enable you to afford. The Undersecretary for War writing to Lord Chelmsford on the 29th of May, says, I have now to convey to you the intimation that Her Majesty's Government, having carefully considered the information at their command, 
have come to the conclusion that the satisfactory administration of affairs in that part of southeastern Africa, in the immediate neighbourhood of the seat of war, can at the present moment only be carried out by placing that administration in the hands of one person holding plenary powers, both civil and military, and that they have selected Sir Garnet Wallersley to discharge these duties. The Colonial Office will by this mail have informed Sir Bartle Freer of this decision, and of its effects so far as he himself is concerned. With respect to the military command, though, I have the satisfaction of informing you that it is not intended that the supersession caused by the appointment as High Commissioner of an officer senior to yourself should be considered as conveying censure on your proceedings. It will nevertheless be your duty, as in the ordinary course of service, to submit and to subordinate your plans to his control. This decision was communicated to you by telegram sent yesterday, via St. Vincent, of which I enclose a copy. Sir Garnet Wallersley, being qualified to act in a political as well as a military capacity, will be in possession up to the latest date and in the fullest detail of the views of Her Majesty's Government. The responsibility placed upon you by Sir Bartle Freer, with regard to the enforcement of his demands upon Ketchewayo, will therefore terminate upon the arrival of the High Commissioner, and any overtures for peace will henceforward be transmitted for decision by him. The news of Sir Garnet Wallersley's appointment was received with the greatest satisfaction in South Africa. The campaign had reached a very critical stage, and the most contradictory and blundering reports about the attitude of the Zulus were constantly circulated. Ketchewayo had been trying to deceive and to gain time by sending in messages for peace. Lord Chelmsford, as a preliminary, had asked that the guns taken at Isalawanda should be returned. At the same time that Ketchewayo pretended to desire peace, his people raided over our border at Middle Drift, swooped down upon the friendly natives near Lundberg, and endeavoured to enter into an alliance with rebellious Boers. The impi that had been occupying the Intombi Valley was withdrawn into Zululand, and it was clear that a concentration of forces was about to take place at Alundi. Zagarnet Wallersley arrived at Natal on the 27th of June. His staff comprised Colonels Colley, Russell, Brackenbury, Major Calmont, and Captains Lord Gifford, Bushman, Yeatman Biggs, Maurice, Braithwaite, and Doyle. The Mayor and cooperation of D'Urban presented an address to His Excellency, in which, after heartily welcoming him, it is stated that British South Africa had unanimously endorsed the consistent policy adopted and pursued by Sir Bartle Freer as the only means open for securing a lasting and honourable peace. Sir Garnet Wallersley, in returning thanks, expressed a hope that a strong and stable peace might be gained, as a means to secure lasting immunity from external discord and hostility. Severe as this stress is upon you, you must, I feel confident, see cause for satisfaction in the patriotic and successful exertions with which your volunteers have laboured to avert peril from your country and to maintain the prowess of English arms in battle. The new general and high commissioner then proceeded to Peter Maritzburg, and shortly afterwards returned and went by sea to Port Durnford, but being unable to land there, was compelled to return to Durban and to proceed thence overland to the front. A difference of opinion existed from the first as to the necessity of the Zulu war, and with reference to the character of Kichawayo, this became much more pronounced after the disaster at Isalawanda. 
It is a significant fact that a very small minority of those who knew the Zulus and lived in Natal shared the sentiments of the British philanthropists, who lived securely at home and took upon themselves to condemn a policy with the reasons for which they were only imperfectly acquainted. The Bishop of Natal, Dr. Colenso, was in South Africa the leader of the party who denounced the war. In the blue books laid before Parliament, interesting letters from his able pen are published, in which he argues the Zulu case exactly as if the race were a civilised one, which could be expected to observe treaties, and with whom perfidy and deceit were unknown. In a dispatch from Sabatal Freer, written from Pretoria in the Transvaal and dated the 18th of April, the High Commissioner sums up the arguments for war. These reasons utterly and completely exclude any feeling or desire for vengeance, and all intention to advance civilization, commerce, and Christianity by the sword. It was absolutely necessary, however, that the Zulu king should cease to reign, the military power of that nation should be broken up, and his people made to feel themselves subject to the British power. Sabato Freer says, I believe that this is in the interests of the Zulus no less than their neighbours. It is in the interest of the European population of Natal and the Transvaal, because they cannot possibly live in peace and quiet with the Zulus in their present state as neighbours. The events of the last few months have rendered it unnecessary to prove by argument that the Zulus have been made into a great military power, that they can destroy an English regiment with artillery to support it, or to shut up or defeat a brigade six times as strong as the ordinary garrison of Natal, unless our troops are very carefully posted and very well handled. The open declarations of their king, no less than the fundamental laws of their organisation, proclaim foreign conquest and bloodshed as a necessity of their existence. They are practically surrounded by British territory, except for the Portuguese. There is now no foreign territory they can reach for purposes of bloodshed without passing through British territory. It is, therefore, clear that they cannot continue in their present condition, with their present form of government and present military organisation, without attacking British subjects, or at best, offending neighbours who believe themselves safe as British subjects or allies. They make no prisoners, save occasionally young women and half-grown children. They show no quarter, and give no chance to the wounded or disabled, disembowelling them at once. They are separated from Natal by a river easily fordable for the greater part of the year, and not too wide to talk across at any time. The boundary between them and the Transvaal is even more easily passed. All these, I submit, are incontrovertible facts, proved by the well-known events of the past few months. I know that there are educated men to be found, of great ability, who claim to be lovers of liberty and of right, and of their own species, who have lived long near the Zulus and who say there is no danger to be apprehended from them if we let them alone. That Cachueo is also a well-meaning prince, quite within his own right in massacring his own subjects, and our soldiers too, if they enter his territory. That all that is necessary to our own safety is to let the Zulu king alone, or if the English do not like that, to leave his neighbourhood. Having lived now for many weeks within a couple of Zulu marches of the Zulu border, among sensible Englishmen, many of them men of great sagacity, coolness and determination, and reasonably just and upright in all their dealings, who never went to sleep without having their arms within reach, 
and being prepared to take refuge with wives and families at a minute's warning within a fortified post, having learned from Vuertrekkers and their children, who had witnessed the massacres of Wienin and Blorkrantz, and who could thus testify that the present peculiarities of Zulu warfare are no recent innovation. I may be allowed to doubt the possibility of making life within reach of a Zulu impi permanently tolerable to ordinary English and Dutchmen. Nor does it seem to me that we can justly say to colonists, either in Natal or the Transvaal, that if they do not like the situation they may go elsewhere. The Zulu right to be where Zulus now are is, with the exception of a smaller remote tract towards Delagoa Bay, simply one of the recent conquests by devastation and massacre. I've never heard the historical fact question that the earlier Zulu impis into what is now Natal and Transvaal territory preceded by a very few years, if they preceded at all, the first appearance of Dutch and English adventurers in the same lands. And the Zulus certainly cannot claim, as the Dutch and English may, any right of occupation from having civilised or improved the land. Hence it seems to me, no more than natural justice, that if either party is to make way for the other, the Zulus should yield, and not the English or Dutch. But I submit that in the interests of the Zulus themselves, we have no right to leave them to their fate. The present system of Quechua is no real choice of the nation. It is simply a reign of terror such as has before now been imposed on some of the most civilised nations of the world. The people themselves are everything that could be desired of the unimproved material of a very fine race. They seem to have all the capacities for forming a really happy and civilised community, where law, order and right shall prevail, instead of the present despotism of a ruthless savage. I can imagine but three ways of their being so improved. First, they might, living alongside a civilised community, gradually imbibe civilised ideas and habits. But for this, it is necessary that their civilised neighbours should be able to live in security, which, as I have already said, seems to me hopeless, unless the military organisation and power of Quechua be broken down. Second, there are the means of improvement which may follow conquest and the breaking down of Quechua's military system, and this seems to me the only reasonable mode of doing our duty by these people. In the cases of Abyssinia and Ashanti, we were compelled by circumstances to retire after conquest and wash our hands of all further responsibility for the future of those countries. But there is no such necessity in the case of Zululand. There is nothing to prevent our taking up and easily carrying the burden and duty laid upon us to protect and to civilise it. There is yet a third plan, which I have seen advocated by high authority. The Zulus are, it is truly said, a nation of fine national characteristics. They have qualities which might enable them to become regenerators and the foremost in civilization of all the nations in South Africa. So far, I can agree with those who hold the opinions I refer to, but not in their further belief that Quechua is the Attila of the Zulus, and that if we only let him alone he will develop into a Charlemagne or an Alfred. How far this process might be rendered tolerable to the present civilised inhabitants of Natal and the Transvaal, I will not stop to inquire. It is quite possible that Zulus overrunning their now civilised neighbours might in due time imbibe some of their civilization, settle down and become civilised themselves, 
absorbing through their captives and subjects the germs of a better system of national existence. I may doubt the probability of such a result, but I will not contest its possibility, and will only say that I am quite sure the countrymen of the present settlers in Natal and the Transvaal will never leave the colonists there to be made the subjects of any such experiment. I can, as I started by saying, see no alternative compatible with our duty but effectually to subdue the Zulus and to govern them as other South African races subject to the British crown are governed. It seems to me that no terms can possibly be made with Quechua which can be compatible with such a result save with the indispensable preliminary of his entire submission. Now it's time to listen to some silence. It was a week later when John Silence called to see the author in his new house and found him well on the way to recovery and already busy again with his writing. The haunted look had left his eyes and he seemed cheerful and confident. Humour restored? laughed the doctor as soon as they were comfortably settled in the room overlooking the park. I've had no trouble since I left that dreadful place, returned Pender gratefully, and thanks to you. The doctor stopped him with a gesture. Never mind that, he said. We'll discuss your new plans afterwards, and my scheme for relieving you of the house and helping you settle elsewhere. Of course, it must be pulled down, for it's not fit for any sensitive person to live in, and any other tenant might be afflicted in the same way you were, although personally I think the evil has exhausted itself by now. He told the astonished author some of his experiences in it with the animals. I don't pretend to understand, Pender said when the account was finished, but I and my wife are intensely relieved to be free of it all. Only, I must say, I should like to know something of the former history of the house. When we took it six months ago, I heard no word against it. Dr. Silence drew a typewritten paper from his pocket. I can satisfy your curiosity to some extent, he said, running his eye over the sheets and then replacing them in his coat. For my secretary's investigations, I've been able to check certain information obtained in the hypnotic trance by a sensitive who helps me in such cases. The former occupant who haunted you appears to have been a woman of singular atrocious life, and a character who finally suffered death by hanging, after a series of crimes that appalled the whole of England and only came to light by the merest chance. She came to her end in the year 1798, for it was not this particular house she lived in, but a much larger one that then stood upon that site it now occupies, and was then, of course, not in London but in the country. She was a person of intellect, possessed of a powerful trained will, and of consummate audacity, and, I'm convinced, availed herself of the resources of the lower magic to attain her ends. This goes far to explain the virulence of the attack upon yourself, and why she is still able to carry on after death the evil practices that formed her main purpose during life. You think that after death a soul can still consciously direct? gasped the author. I think, as I've told you before, that the forces of a powerful personality may still persist after death in the line of their original momentum, replied the doctor, and that strong thoughts and purposes can still react upon suitably prepared brains long after their originators have passed away. If you knew anything of magic, he pursued, you would know that thought is dynamic 
and that it may call into existence forms and pictures that may well exist for hundreds of years. For not far removed from the region of our human life is another region, where float the waste and drift of all the centuries, the limbo of the shells of the dead, a densely populated region, and it's crammed with horror and abomination of all descriptions, and sometimes galvanised into active life again by the will of a trained manipulator, a mind versed in the practices of lower magic. That this woman understood its vile commerce, I am persuaded, and the forces she set during her life have simply been accumulating ever since, and would have continued to do so had they not been drawn down upon yourself, and afterwards then discharged and satisfied through me. Anything might have brought down the attack, for besides drugs there are certain violent emotions, certain moods of the soul, certain spiritual fevers, if I may so call them, which directly open the inner being to a cognizance of this astral region I've mentioned. In your case, it just happened to be a peculiarly potent drug that did it. But now, tell me, he added after a pause, handing to the perplexed author a pencil drawing he had made of the dark countenance that appeared to him during the night on Putney Hill. Tell me if you recognise this face. Pender looked at the drawing closely, greatly astonished. He shuddered a little as he looked. Undoubtedly, he said, it is the face I kept trying to draw. Dark, with a great mouth and jaw, and the drooping eye. That is the woman. Dr. Silence then produced from his pocketbook an old-fashioned woodcut of the same person which his secretary had unearthed from the records of the Newgate calendar. The woodcut and the pencil drawing were two different aspects of the same dreadful visage. The men compared them for some moments in silence. "'It makes me thank God for the limitation of your senses,' said Pender quietly with a sigh. "'Continuous clairvoyance must be a sore affliction.' "'It is indeed,' returned John Silent significantly. "'And if all the people nowadays who claim to be clairvoyant were really so, "'the statistics of suicide and lunacy would be considerably higher than they are.' "'It is little wonder,' he added, that your sense of humour was clouded with the mind forces of that dead monster trying to use your brain for their dissemination. You've had an interesting adventure, Mr. Felix Bender, and let me add a fortunate escape. The author was about to renew his thanks when there came a sound of scratching at the door, and the doctor sprang up quickly. It's time for me to go. I, I left my dog on the step, but I suppose... Before he had time to open the door, it had yielded to the pressure behind it and flew wide to admit a great yellow-haired collie, the dog wagging its tail and contorting his whole body with delight, tore across the floor and tried to leap upon his owner's breast, and there was laughter and happiness in the old eyes, for they were clear again, clear as day. Polaris by H. P. Lovecraft Into the north window of my chamber glows the pole star with uncanny light. All through the long hellish hours of blackness it shines there, and in the autumn of the year, when the winds from the north curse and whine, and the red-leaved trees of the swamp mutter things to one another in the small hours of the morning under their horned waning moon, I sit by the casemate and watch that star. Down from the heights reels the glittering Cassiopeia as the hours wear on while Charles's wane lumbers up from behind the vapour-soaked swamp trees 
that sway in that night wind. Just before dawn, Arcturus winks ruddily from above the cemetery on the low hillock, and Coma Berexes shimmers weirdly afar off in the mysterious east. But still, the pole star leers down from the same place in the black vault, winking hideously like an insane watching eye that strives to convey some strange message, and yet recalls nothing save that it once had a message to convey. Sometimes, when it's cloudy, I can sleep. Well do I remember the night of the great Aurora, when over the swamp played the shocking coruscations of the demon light. After the beam came clouds, and then I slept. And it was under a horned waning moon that I saw the city for the first time. Still and somnolent did it lie, on a strange plateau in a hollow between strange peaks, of ghastly marble were its walls and its towers, its columns, domes and pavements. In the marble streets were marble pillars, the upper parts of which were carven into the images of grave-bearded men. The air was warm and stirred not, and overhead, scarce ten degrees from the zenith, glowed that watching pole star. Long did I gaze on the city, but the day came not, and when the red older baron, which blinked low in the sky but never set, had crawled a quarter of the way around the horizon, I saw light and motion in the houses and the streets. Forms, strangely robed, but at once noble and familiar, walked abroad and under the horned waning moon men talked wisdom in a tongue which I understood, though it was unlike any language which I have ever known. And when the red older baron had crawled more than halfway around the horizon, there were again darkness and silence. When I awaked, I was not as I had been. Upon my memory was graven the vision of the city, and within my soul had arisen another and vaguer recollection, of whose nature I could not then be certain. Thereafter, the cloudy nights when I could not sleep, I saw the city often sometimes under the hot yellow rays of a sun which did not set, but which wheeled low in the horizon, and on clear nights the pole star leered as never before. Gradually I came to wonder what might be a place in that city on the strange plateau betwixt strange peaks. At first, content to view the scene as an all-observant, uncorporeal presence, I now desired to define my relation to it and to speak my mind amongst the grave men who conversed each day in the public squares. I said to myself, This is no dream, for by what means can I prove the greater reality of that other life in that house of stone and brick south of the sinister swamp and the cemetery on the low hillock, where the pole star peeps into my north window each night? One night, as I listened to the discourses in the large square containing many statues, I felt a change, and perceived that I had at last a bodily form. Nor was I a stranger in the streets of Olitho, which lies on the plateau of Sarkia, betwixt the peaks of Noton and Cadiphonic. It was my friend Alos who spoke, and his speech was one that pleased my soul, for it was the speech of a true man and patriot. That night had the news come of Dacos's fall and of the advance of the Inutos, squat, hellish yellow fiends, 
who five years ago had appeared out of the unknown west to ravage the confines of our kingdom and to besiege many of our towns. Having taken the fortified places at the foot of the mountains, their way now lay open to the plateau, unless every citizen could resist with the strength of ten men, for the squat creatures were mighty in the arts of war, and knew not the scruples of honour which held back our tall grey-eyed men of Lomar from ruthless conquest. Alos, my friend, was commander of all the forces on the plateau, and in him lay the last hope of our country. On this occasion he spoke of the perils to be faced, and exhorted the men of Olatho, bravest of the Lomarians, to sustain the traditions of their ancestors, who, when forced to move southward from Zopnar before the advance of the great ice-sheet, even as our descendants must some day flee from the land of Lomar, valiantly and victoriously they swept aside the hairy, long-armed cannibal Nopkeks that stood in their way. To me, Alos denied the warrior's part, for I was feeble and given to strange faintings when subjected to stress and hardships. But my eyes were the keenest in the city, despite the long hours I gave each day to the study of the Noptic manuscripts and the wisdom of the Zanabrian fathers. So my friend, desiring not to doom me to inaction, rewarded me with that duty which was second to nothing in importance. To the watchtower of Thapnan he sent me, there to serve as the eyes of our army. Should the Inatos attempt to gain the citadel by the narrow pass behind the peak of Noton, and thereby surprise the garrison, I was to give the signal of fire, which would warn the waiting soldiers and save the town from immediate disaster. Alone I mounted the tower, for every man of stout body was needed in the passes below. My brain was sore dazed with excitement and fatigue, for I had not slept in many days. Yet was my purpose firm, for I loved my native land of Lomar, and the marble city of Olatho that lies betwixt the peaks of Noton and Cataphonic. But as I stood in the tower's topmost chamber, I beheld the horned waning moon, red and sinister, quivering through the vapours that hovered over the distant valley of Banoff, and through an opening in the roof glittered the pale pole star, fluttering as if alive, and leering like a fiend and tempter. Methought its spirits whispered evil counsel, soothing me to traitorous somnolence and a damnable rhythmic promise which it repeated over and over. Slumber, watcher, till the spheres, six and twenty thousand years, have resolved, and I return to the spot where now I burn. Other stars anon shall rise to the axis of the skies, stars that soothe and stars that bless, with a sweet forgetfulness. Only when my round is o'er shall the past disturb thy door. Vainly did I struggle with my drowsiness, seeking to connect these strange words with some law of the skies which I had learnt from the Noptic manuscripts. My head, heavy and reeling, drooped to my breast, and when next I looked up it was in a dream, with the pole star grinning at me through a window from over the horrible and swaying trees of a dream swamp. And I am still dreaming. In my shame and despair, I sometimes scream frantically, begging the dream creatures around me to waken me ere their inertus steal up the pass behind the peak Noton and take the citadel by surprise. 
These creatures are demons, for they laugh at me and tell me I am not dreaming. They mock me whilst I sleep, and whilst the squat yellow foe may be creeping silently upon us. I have failed in my duties, and betrayed the marble city of Olathol. I have proven false to Alos, my friend and commander. But still these shadows of my dreams deride me. They say there is no land of Lomar, save in my nocturnal imaginings, that in these realms, where the pole star shines high, and red Aldebaran crawls low around the horizon, there has been naught save ice and snow for thousands of years of years, and never a man save squat yellow creatures blighted by the cold called Eskimo. And as I writhe in the guilty agony, frantic to save the city whose peril every moment grows, and vainly striving to shake off this unnatural dream of a house of stone and brick, south of a sinister swamp and a cemetery on a low hillock, the pole star, evil and monstrous, leers down from the black vault, winking hideously like an insane watching eye, which strives to convey some message, yet recalls nothing save that it once had a message to convey. And that's all for today. Except to remind you of my Patreon account where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you'll get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also you'll get all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a classic science fiction novel called Plague Ship. Also, a dark and creepy book called Nightmare Tales by Blavatsky, and the final volume of Charles Oman's History of the Peninsula War. So, if you fancy that, please go to patreon.com and search for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. So, until next time... <laughs>